very quickly, just want to check uh, with all of you. How many of you caught last week's sermon? Okay, how many of you, you caught last week's sermon? Okay, maybe let me do this in the reverse. All your hands down. Um, if you didn't catch last week's sermon, can you just give me a little wave? Okay, if you didn't, you didn't catch, uh, I, this, so, this will help me know how to, how to uh, kick on, right? Last week, we started our first of, meant to be two parts, it will be three parts. Uh, first of three parts uh, um, on Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, as you know, is a, is a love poem in your Bible, okay? So it's not, it's not on the airwaves, uh, it, it's in our Bibles. Um, it is mature, okay? In a sense, yes, it's mature, it's mature, okay? And, and, and because of that, our kids uh, um, are, are, are next door, you know? And so among us just adults, uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to look at Song of Solomon a bit more. Now, last week, thank goodness, I covered most of the parts that, that would make you blush. Right, and uh, and I think and I think I had I had the the best seats in the house to see you blush. Actually, it's the reverse. You all saw me blush, right? It's the, it's the reverse. Uh, today, uh, we are looking at the uh, the next thing, right? Uh, another layer, uh, another layer deeper into the meaning of this of, of this strange yet beautiful book. Now, um, before that, sorry. Oh yes, we ended here. Last week, we ended, we, we, we ended on this slide and I was talking about intimacy, about uh, God's vision for intimacy and how it is always a personal one, an intimate one, right? Uh, um, uh, one that involves a vulnerability. We open up our hearts, we open up ourselves, um, even to our weakest parts of ourselves. It is always mutual, sharing, Actual, meaning it's not virtual, it is actual, you're really loving someone, and it is always self-giving. And there is a counterfeit, there is a counterfeit intimacy, counterfeit version of sexual intimacy uh, um, out uh, um, and about, and it draws your attention. It is a dehumanized one. Um, it is a depersonalized one such that it always objectifies uh, the, the supposed lover but it never humanizes them, it objectifies them. It's not the same thing, quite the opposite, to humanize and to objectify, right? It is always, because of that, always exploiting um, the other, whether it's through the eyes or through the body or through the thoughts, you know, it's always exploiting someone else. It is always because of that selfish, fantasy-based and consumeristic. That is not real love. That is not the intimacy that God has ordained for all of us. And so, and so I want to, to uh, lead us layer by layer. I think today, today I don't so much have three points. So it's not a, 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 an old school three-point sermon. It's actually a long conversation. And the long conversation will be, I'm just going to bookmark the long conversation or, or, or title or chapter titles, right? Uh, um, there are five, five of these. And the first one is that we all long for intimacy. I'm just going to pause now and then just pray for a moment before we jump in, right? Let's just all pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord, that today we can be here. We can be here with you. We can be here in your presence. We can be here um, to allow you uh, to speak. And we can be here to hear, to hear you say, I love you. To hear you say, you are important. I notice you. 
we can be here to listen to the voice of our Savior, our lover, our God, our treasure. Say, I see you. You are worth much to me. So Father, may you turn all our hearts to you. May you help me to share your word uh, in, in, in an honoring way, in a truthful and faithful way, Lord God. May I be decreased. May you be increased. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. And so, and so, um, uh, just want to share. Um, I I would like to freestyle a little bit today. I would like to. I, I feel that I feel it's going to be a struggle for me to preach from my heart today. So I want to override that by preaching from my heart today. Um, when I was a when I was a kid, uh, primary school, um, I had a teacher. Okay, so a little bit of context. I'm the youngest of six kids, right? And so and so all my five older siblings. Uh, went ahead to school before me. To be fair, my four older sisters went to a girls' school. When I went to uh, 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 my boys' school, I was only in the shadow of one sibling, so to speak. Only in the shadow of one sibling, so to speak. But um, uh, I, I think my teachers knew my family and, and they knew my sisters. They knew uh, um, uh, how well, high achieved they were. And so I remember being a very young boy, probably not much older than my kids right now, um, when one teacher spoke this to uh, me. He said, you are the black sheep of your family. Yeah, uh, I was, I was kind of like an active kid, typical, I don't know, let's say eight, okay? typical eight-year-old, you know, active, not doing my homework, uh, hygiene standards were not really there, you know. I was just, a, I was just, a, I was just a typical kid, lah. Okay, I was just a mess, lah. Okay. Um, and at some point, uh, this teacher uh, 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 said to me, "You know, Fergus, I think he knows my family, or lah. You know, you're you're the black sheep of your family." Wow. You know, that's a, that's one of those things that when you grow up, you keep circling back to. I think for most of us, there are things as we grow up, we keep circling back to certain childhood memories. That one kept, I kept going back to it. I kept going back to it because it, it kind of, and I, I didn't know Jesus back then, so there was nobody to help me go in and uproot all these kind of words spoken over me. It kind of became a core memory for me. And a lot of my life, I found, um, I, I kind of lifted out. I don't know whether I went out there and started re-enacting it and started to be black sheep in my group of friends, black sheep out of my group of my, or, or, or my, or my friends from university. University, black sheep in uh, among the cell leaders in YA, black sheep among the, <laughs> the, the pastors in Nasarika. I don't know. I don't know if I have ever gone out to, to subconsciously reenact those words. But but i I know what the Lord is saying to me. And I think for all of us, this is a journey one, right? And for me, what he is saying to me is I love you, I see you. And then I can tell you, the enemy has a way of taking some of these things from your past and really promote, promote you maximum, right? He will kind of like, 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 you know, trigger you. And I know the Lord keeps saying me, Fergus, you really believe that I love you. And then there are days where I say yes. And then there are days where I say, oh, I'm not sure, man. <laughs> I see some of this, I'm not sure. And then he says, you know, Fergus, do you remember you remember when what, what that teacher said to you? And I say, yes, I remember. Of course, I, how, how to forget? How to forget, right? I'm the black sheep of my family, right? That's what I was told. That's what I was spoken over me. And, and I want to say this. I want to declare this. And this is not a triumphant thing. 
But I want to declare it because I think it is important to say these things. I'm not the black sheep of my family. I am a sheep in my family. I am a sheep in God's family. And I think it's important because this it deals with the identities that we have in terms of knowing whether we are defective, whether we are substandard, whether we are broken, whether we are uh, um, uh, the marred one, right? Or whether we are truly beautiful and worthy of the love of another. And the another whom we are talking about is God. And so my friends, as we go into Song of Solomon today, I want us to have this as our lens. You are of much value because God loves you. God loves you. And in loving you, He assigns you value. I honestly don't know what value, what intrinsic value I have, what intrinsic value all of us have, if not for the, the value assigned to us by God. Is there, is there some intrinsic value? It's hazy. I'm not sure how to even gauge that. But I know one thing I can gauge. I know one thing I can gauge. The God who created all the heavens and the earth, the God of all creation, says to me, I love you with a ferocious love, with a forceful love, with a joyful love, with a love that overflows. I love you until the end of the world. And I can rest on that love. Because of that, I know every single one of you, you are loved by God so much. And because of that, you are valuable. Because of that, you have worth. We are all on a journey of longing for intimacy. I was sharing this earlier on social media as well, that we are all kind of inbuilt. It's like we are hardwired. Can I get just a little bit more on the mic? It's just a little bit soft. Um, uh, we are all hardwired to long for love. And sometimes, we deny it. Sometimes we say, no lah, you know, and then we put up a brave front, like, like it's, it's not something that matters to us, but we still are, right? We still are. It is a need, it is a love, it is a, a necessity deep inside us that is primal. It's deep inside us, right? It's deep inside us. It is a primal need for something. We long for intimacy. Now, um, let me take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Right, um, because I want to show you some things that might make you go like, "Uh huh, I did not see that before." Genesis chapter two: The Lord God said, "It is not good for man to be alone." Now, if you are familiar with the with, with, with the with the creation narrative of Genesis chapter one, you will know that every time God created something on each day, what did He do? Come on, come on to my blow church. He said, "It is good." Right? Let there be light. And then light came and he said, it is good. Evening, morning, the first day. And after that follows four other days, right? Four other days where he goes on creating. And after every time he creates something, whether it is the, the marine life or the, or, or the, or the plant life uh, or, or the sun and the stars, you know, in the sky, he pronounces that it is good. After he creates man, he says it is not good for man to be alone. So he created Adam, right? The man, Adam, right? And by the way, it's pronounced that way to the, the Jewish people, right? He creates him 
And then he says, not finished yet. Not good that he's alone. And we always read everything else after this purely, exclusively in the context of marriage. We hear it in weddings. We hear it in marriage seminars. We read it in marriage books, Christian marriage books. We always hear Genesis 2 in the purely in the context of marriage. I say purely because it is important that we hear it in the context of marriage because it is relevant and central, I may even say, to marriage. But it is not the only layer to hear Genesis 2. Adam was alone. It is not good for this guy to be alone. On a very primal level, Genesis 2.18 is also, also, uh, not alternatively, but also about companionship. It is also about friendship. It is also about camaraderie. It's also about having someone to talk nonsense with, sit by the lake and fish, you know, look at the star, you see something beautiful, you want to express it, you have nobody next to you, you know, you have somebody next to you, you can express joy, you can express beauty, you can express uh, um, anger, you can express pain, whatever it may be. And so, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now he is good. Before he had companionship, he was, he was not yet good. After he was not alone, then he became now, I'm going to cycle back to this later, but I think it's very important because Genesis 2 gives you the goal. The goal is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, taken out of me so that you and I are made of the same substance. Our hearts beat together. Our flesh wounds together. Our spirits sing joy together. That's what bone of bones, flesh of flesh, really means. And so, we have this longing. Because until and unless you have companionship, you have someone or many someones or other someones or maybe on a most ultimate level, a someone, it is not good. And you're longing for that feeling of joy and love and satisfaction will never, ever truly be met. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, verse 1, verse 2, says, Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of my mouth. Now, if you can look past the fact that it's a girl saying to a guy, Oh, that he would kiss me, I would, I would say this. Songs 1, 2 speaks of a universal longing. 
a universal longing to be loved, to be wanted, to be desirable. And every single one of us makes this cry. Every day. Every day. Oh, that he would kiss me. Now, I'm a guy. So I don't say, oh, that he would kiss me. Neither, I'm a married man. So neither do I say, oh, that she would kiss me. But at the heart of it, that's what we want. And if you can just look at this desire, this cry, this call, this, this need, say, oh, that I would, that they would. They would what? When you're at the workplace, your cry, your deep inner cry is, oh, that they would notice me. Oh, that they would praise me for my, for, for, for my slides. Oh, that, that they would, they would uh, uh, accept that my, my solution, my problem solving had some merit in it. Maybe at home, your cry is, oh, that he would, you know, appreciate my cooking, right? Or, or, or oh, that she would appreciate my cooking, right? Oh, that someone would say thank you for for, for how the laundry is done, right? Oh, that I would be given some time, you know, uh, uh, to rest. Oh, what? What is that? Oh, that he would kiss me. What is that kiss me for you? Every single one of us have this. And everywhere we go, in every arena of life, we are sending out this pulse. It's like a Bluetooth signal, right? It's constantly going out. You don't have to press a button and hold it to trigger uh, 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 that it's pulsing. We are pulsating with this call. Oh, that he would kiss me. Oh, that I would be loved. Oh, that I would be gently spoken to. What is it for you? We are pulsing this every single day. And this, this, this need, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Is it, is it just because we are we, we FOMO? We see other girls have, have like boyfriends who really care for them. Is it that we, we see other, uh, other men whose wives uh, treat them real nice and we suddenly feel of missing out, you know, like, oh, I wish I could. I, I, I wish I... That, is, is it relative? Is it relative to another person? It, and such that if there were no other persons, we, we moved out to the country, you know, there's nobody around us, that all those needs will be met and suddenly because I can't compare, I'm fine. Is it? I dare say not. I dare say definitely not because Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, He, that is God, He has set eternity in the human heart. God has put something inside you that makes you long for, a, for, for something that transcends, something that is bigger, something that is that is deeper, wider, more lasting than this. There is a love song. Um, forget by who. Uh, it's called More Than This, right? Uh, it's, quite a, uh, it's quite a sad song. It's from the 80s, right? It goes, more than this, you know there's nothing, right? And, and the singer is looking at the world around him and, and thinking, Roxy music, right? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure who sang, who, who sang more than this, right? If you all know, type it into the chat or shout it out, right? The, the singer, the poet is saying, is there anything more than this? And this poet, Solomon, this one was Solomon, right? He says, 
God has put more into your heart, a desire, a longing for more than this, a desire and longing for something deeper and more transcendent. And now, I, uh, I read a book earlier this year. It's called, and the title alone kind of knocked me, knocked me over, right? The title says, the title is, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Um, the author's name is Carson McCullers, um, and I'm going to read to you a quote from it. The heart is a lonely hunter when only one desire, with, so I'm going to start again. The heart is a lonely hunter with only one desire, to find some lasting comfort in the arms of another's fire, driven by a desperate hunger to the arms of a neon light. The heart is a lonely hunter when there's no sign of love in sight. Every single one of us has the heart that hunts for acceptance and completion and love in the people around us, in the scenes around us. And as long as there is no sign of love inside, the heart will keep on hunting in a lonely way. You know, sometimes the poets and the prophets of this world, you know, the, the, so, so, so to speak, right, prophets, right? Um, the, the, the writers of this world have much to say about the human condition that can speak to us, right? We hold it in tension together with the truths of God. It can be a very beautiful thing. We all long for intimacy, but intimacy can prove to be very elusive. You guys know um, Songs chapter 3. Right? The girl wakes up in the night. She says this, By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city. In the streets and in the squares, I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. This is the girl, the woman in Song of Solomon. She wakes up in bed. And she's not married to him at this point yet. He's not there. So she's not expecting him to be there. But she wakes up desiring to be with him. Her so-called lonely heart starts hunting. And she hunts through the city. I sought him. I did not find him. So she goes through the street. She goes to all these places. And she did not find him. She starts looking for others to help her find this elusive thing, which is her lover. Church, I know all of us long for that something and we turn here and there for help. Some of us have decided that we will do it on our own, that we'll seek for love on our own, we'll find it on our own. Nobody help me because you are not good at helping me anyway. And then we go about it. And the heart is a lonely hunter when there's no love in sight. Some of us will seek help. We will seek the people around us. We, we, we get wingmen and get wing, 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 wing women. Are, are, there, are there wing women? Yes, right? No? No, I don't. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I'm married. I don't know. Um, uh, we, we get help. We, 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 we look for community. And we look, we look for, for, for people who can partner us and help us to find this elusive thing. And guess what? They are also looking. And some of them 
who are helping us might be married and you thought they are not looking for anything that can satisfy because they are full, they are done, they are done, checkbox already, they are married, they are settled. Not true. And I'll get to that in a moment. But for this girl, she goes to the watchman in the city. The watchmen who go about the city, they found me. And then she takes a chance to see if they can help her. She says, have you seen the one I love? And don't we go to different places, different people and, and, and say this, have you seen the one I love? It's not our whole pursuit for meaning. Have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed them. She's one of those who got lucky, right? So to speak, lucky as if. I found the one I love. And when she found him, she held him. And she would not let him go. And sometimes we find something or someone that fills us, that gives us a sense of belonging, of, of affection, and we hold and we say, I will not let him go. And be careful with this one. Be careful with this one because, because even the sweetest, most, most uh, 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 tenured married of couples at one point will have to let each other go. And there are some relationships, some, some targets, some ones I love. If you hold them and you hold them too tight, there'll be a better, a, a better love that you, cannot, that you cannot hold because you're holding on to this. Some of us have to let go of some loves in order to hold on to a better love. And I can say this because I know that if I hold my own loves too tightly, if I hold on to a failure and the three kids, if I hold on to them too tightly, there are going to be times when God is going to call me, call me into a new so-called romance with him and he's going to ask me, to loosen my grip. And if I keep my grip too tight, I will hold him, I will hold them, and I cannot let that go to hold on to God. And so I'm learning, 42 years old, 12 years married, that it's going to be a journey of learning how to find the one you love, how to hold, how hard, how, 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 how tight to hold, when to let go, when to loosen your grip, and there is no rule book. There is no guide manual for this. It's a journey with God. That's why Jesus comes and he says, come, follow me, right? Come, follow me. Not learn, you know, not, not apply these principles, but come, follow me. I want to move on from this. Have you seen the one I love, right? I'm going to move on. I want to talk a little bit about marital intimacy and non-marital intimacies. And by non-marital intimacies, I'm not talking about extramarital intimacies, not the same thing. A lot of the time, we think about marriage and the sexual intimacy you can find there as being like this. We pedestalize it. Can I say this in church? I mean, we've all read, oh no, we've, all not, we've not all read, we've not all read all the marriage books, but we've heard some things being said in church about marriage. We've all possibly heard pastors talk about marriage. We've all been to weddings and heard wedding sermons. And to a large extent, we have been taught that marital satisfaction is like this checkbox. You cross the line, you walk in uh, um, um, as a single, you know, 
and then at the end of it you do your recessional the music plays and you walk out into that proverbial sunset right and then as if to say that everything is done these folks are going to live happily ever after and married people do you all really live happily ever after just uh, just, just because of a of a 20 minute ceremony you know you don't you know that quite possibly your life immediately became 50 times harder it did it did i mean it became 50 times easier in some respects and then it became 50 times 100 times harder in some other respects because now you are joined almost spiritually conjoined with another person and you have to make that work and now you're going to desire and put all your needs for intimacy into that one person is going to fulfill all your intimacy needs. But you know, sometimes, and I speak on behalf of church and pastors, sometimes we almost go to the extent of saying that. That, you know, once you find your husband, everything counted and all your intimacy needs, right? You can take it all and you can pour it all onto him. Bah! And the same for wives. Huh? Okay. And the poor fella, overnight, has to meet all your needs. And they can't. And they won't. But they can't. And they will fail you. And they will disappoint you. And that's because maybe our culture over-exalts some of these things. Maybe our culture today over-exalts romance. Maybe our culture, I showed you last week, our culture today definitely over-exalts sexual intimacy as the highest form of all intimacies, such that if you are exercising and active and fulfilled in that area, your whole life is sorted because you are the most fulfilled person. That's the most important one, and you're fulfilling that. Our culture does that to us. And if you just move a little bit away from the Netflix and chill to church we have our own church version of that marital bliss is the highest form of intimacy get to it for somehow you manage to land at the altar walk out with him or her you know, and you tap into this thing and you'll forever be satisfied not true not true and then our poor singles it's a visual, visual joke here, by the way, right? Because we expect our singles to be plants. Right? We expect our singles to have no sexual desires. We, have, we expect our singles to just keep it under a lid, you know, like those old Milo tins, you just go bam, 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 right? And then the pressure cooks and the desires are legitimate and they are there, and they are valid and they are felt. <coughs> and frankly, we're not very creative in church about how to help them with those needs. We just tell them, save yourself for marriage, boom, 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 you know, and just cover it up. And the whole thing is rattling, it's shaking because it's real. And their hearts too are lonely hunters. And until there's a sign of love inside, it will be looking, it will be hunting for some kind of, some kind of connection. And I think we trivialize the sexual lives of our singles a little bit too much. Once we get married, we count him ready, you know, and then like, okay, imagine me, okay, pastor already, count married ready, count him ready, got kids ready, and then I can tell the singles, hey, you know what, guys, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, just just save yourself. Just wait. Just wait for. Just wait until you get married. Then you will have great sex. You know. Just wait until you get married, and then everything will be okay. Just wait until you get married, and all your desires will be fulfilled by your new spouse, by your spouse, right? And maybe we trivialize the sex lives of our singles, and and to to an extent, we don't know how to steward their sexual desires. We don't know how to steward sexual intimacy among singles who do not, or at least in church, you know, our Christian ethic, we do not say to our young people that you, know, you can go and, you know, just like, yeah, you know, just you know, insert blank, right? We say no, but we don't know how to steward it other than say no, or say wait, or say stay to yourself, right? We don't. And I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that's loving. It's not about fair, but I don't think that's loving. And so I'm in the journey of learning how to steward the desires, the passions, the, the, the longings of our singles around us. I'm on this journey. And I will not even come close to presuming that I've kind of got this one figured. But I wanted to raise this today because I wanted our church to have an open conversation about it. And I wanted us to have the first word and to get the first word on it correct. The first word on this is that the sexual longings of our singles are important. They will not, we will not gaslight them. We will not treat them like they don't exist. We will not trivialize them. We will understand and accept that these things are real. They are there. And our role as a community is to love them and to find a way to steward it together. I will get to this later. Oh, actually, I think I have got a, I, I, I've, got a, I've got a quote. And this is such a good quote. Athena sends me the best quotes, okay? Athena sends me the best quotes. Like, like if, if she was my friend, I'd marry her, right? Um, marriage is not the answer for your loneliness. It is a metaphor of the answer. Can you all hear this? Because this was a mic drop moment for me. I don't know if this is a mic drop moment for you. Marriage is not the answer to your for your loneliness. It is a metaphor of the answer. This is why marriage, as great as it may be, will ultimately fail to satisfy your deepest longings to be known and loved. When I read this, and I, and I knew in, a, in an instant that I wanted to show this to you, right? Um, and I wasn't quite sure how to do the slide because I wanted to show you everything. Uh, but I really wanted to, to, to help you land on this. Guys, in church, sometimes we pedestalize marriage as the thing that's going to satisfy everything. It's not. It's not the answer. But here's the rub. It is the metaphor of the answer. Our human marriages are metaphors. They are symbolic, they are emblematic, they are, they are representative of the love that Christ has with us. And marriage is not the ultimate thing on the pedestal. The most important thing that we are all aspiring to is the love that Christ has for the church and the love that the church has for Christ. And we are all approximating that. Does that make sense? We are all going for that. And one of the ways we go for that, one off church, not the only. And I, and I, 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 would, haste, I, I would be reticent to say the most 
the best metaphor. I won't even go as far as to say the best metaphor. It is one of several metaphors. And some people will say it's the best metaphor. If you read a marriage book, you definitely will. And that's okay. That is okay. But it's one of the metaphors for which we understand the love between God and us and us with God. And in that relationship is the ultimate intimacy, is the ultimate love, is the ultimate joy and satisfaction. And in that, the lonely heart finds its love. And every other metaphor is, is approximating it and trying to reach out for it. I want to move on. One of the things that we sacrifice when our culture, now, the culture out there in the world puts romance as the highest. Romance or sexual uh, um, expression as the highest thing, expression, right? In church, we often just replace it with marriage. So it's more holy, I've got the job, okay? Okay, it's marriage. But actually, you know what? It might be more similar to each other than we think. Really, let's be honest. One of the things we sacrifice when we pedestalize some of these things are other expressions of intimacy. Because it's going to startle you and it should startle you. What I'm going to show you next should startle you. That the Apostle Paul, in writing to both the Roman church and the Corinthian church, said and used language that triggers the Jewish readers to remember Genesis 2. He says this. Now, he says this to the, to, in Romans 12. As we have many parts in one body, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, now hear the reading of the, the, the wording of this. Individually, we are members of one another. Now, we always hear this exclusively in the context of serving in church and I have my role and something uh, uh, should be thankful for the connect team and connect team should be thankful for the preacher and preacher should be thankful for the broadcast team and so on, right? And yes, yes, I get it. It's true. But it's much more than that. It's much more than just your spiritual giftings and how you operate in a team. It is fundamental. It's essential. It speaks to the essence of how we are to find meaning in our human actions with one another. We are one body in Christ. We, the church family, the Apostle Paul, it's in our Bible. The church family is to be one of the metaphors for how we approximate the love Christ has for, for, for us. That when we love one another with that kind of love and the kind of sharing of one body, it's almost marital. Why is it almost marital? Because right, you remember in Genesis 2, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you and I, you were taken out of me so that your body is like my body and individually we are as members of one another. Now, if you and I, you and I being Gentile people, you know, like, and, and the Greeks who heard this and the, whoever other Europeans who heard this may not have triggered the memory of this quite the same way as they would have if you were Jewish. But if you were Jewish, you would hear it. You would immediately hyperlink back to Genesis 2. 
And I think that's important. Because one of the things we have sacrificed in pedestalizing marriage as the most important and only expression of sexual intimacy or, or, or kind of love and longing is that we, we sacrifice some of these things. I want to show you a quote. Um, this quote, I found it in a Christian website of a guy quoting someone else, okay? And I'm not sure, the guy is in religious studies. I'm not sure what his, what his faith persuasion is, but I'm going to read to you. It's a little bit academic, but I think we can handle it, okay? How, how are we doing? Are we doing okay? Yeah? Because our post-Freudian world associates all physical attraction and interpersonal affection with erotic desire, intimate same-sex friendships, intimate same-sex friendships, become all but impossible to achieve. To avoid being mistaken for gay, these days, many self-proclaimed straight people, men especially, settle for superficial associations with their comrades. You're following? And reserve the sort of costly intimacy that once characterized such chaste same-sex relationships for their romantic partners alone. Their ostensibly normal sexual orientation cheats them out of an essential aspect of human flourishing. Deep friendship. Well, let that sit. And I'm going to explain it a little bit in case you're still squinting. Like, uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means this. That once upon a time, the pressure, the pressures that, that were applied on men to be bros with other men without the pressure of being perceived to be gay was not that. And therefore, men could tap into a very deep, chaste, same-sex relationship and a sort of costly intimacy you can really... That's why, uh, I tell, I tell, in today's world, you cannot read David and Jonathan without a homoerotic lens. You can't, right? That's why when, when, when the people of this world who are not in the church, they read David and Jonathan and they hear David saying that, wow, I love you with a love greater than the love I have for a woman, right? And they're like, wow, gay, gay Bible, homoeroticism is right here in you know, uh, 1 Samuel or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. It's because we have pedestalized sex, right? It's, can a man have a, a filial love, a, 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 a brotherly love? For another, for, 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 for another man that is so deep, so rich, so powerful, so forceful, so loyal? Can two men have that without being homoerotic? Yes, it should be. We have sacrificed that. Our culture in this world, which is oversexed, has sacrificed that so that two men can't be bros for life in such a deep, powerful way without someone from outside looking and saying that, those two guys are dodgy, man. I think something's going on. And we are poorer for it. We are much poorer for it. I, this article, this writer talks about men, right? I don't know how it is with women. Y'all will know, right? I know that with guys, we will, we'll, we'll bro, 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 bro. Very superficial sometimes, you know? Until a certain point, we can go a little deeper. But I don't know how much we have been sacrificing in the midst of this. And then in, in the midst of this, there is a counterfeit intimacy. And there are all kinds of counterfeit intimacies. I, 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 I'm quite scared to go into this because uh, uh, 
to talk about counterfeits. Now, my favorite quote on counterfeits is this. The counterfeit contains much of the original, but the original contains none of the counterfeit. Think about that. You will never make a three ringgit counterfeit note. You will never make a three ringgit counterfeit note. Why? Because there is no original three, three ringgit note. If you're going to make counterfeit money, you will make counterfeits of something that is real. In other words, the counterfeit contains much of the original. It will contain as much of the original as it can with one or two errors. But the original contains none of the counterfeit. And that's very important to know. As Christians, we live in a world full of counterfeit light, counterfeit joys, counterfeit longings, counterfeit satisfaction to your longings. Your longings are real. Your counterfeit longings, it's the satisfactions to your longings. And we must have discernment. And how do we have discernment? If you talk to an old school banker, right, they will touch the notes. They touch like only thousand pieces of that 100 ringgit note or that 50 ringgit note until the moment they touch, eyes closed, they touch the counterfeit note. I can feel it. Off. This one feels off. Right? And why? How, how do you grow that level of sensitivity to the original until you touch the counterfeit just a little bit? You can tell this is off. I have a friend who used to make bags, repair bags, he used to repair bags, right? And, and all these pantries uh, uh, and all these datins will bring, bring their designer bags to him. And he would lift the bag and immediately, just by the weight distribution, he would be able to tell, oh, actually, you thought your bag was, you know, original, someone got a certificate, you know, from LV or whatever, you know, uh, but it's, it's not, right? It's not. Um, when you are familiar with the original, right? Isaiah 44 speaks about a counterfeit God and a counterfeit love. And he says it with so much burn, so much burn. Isaiah 44 says this, the woodworker cuts down the cypress. He burns half in a fire and roasts meat on it. Ah, I'm warm. I see the blaze. He makes a God with the rest of it and bows down to it. Save me for you are my God. And all counterfeits work like this. All counterfeits work like this. It contains none of the original. These are some of the counterfeits. There are so many. I want to show you three because they're relevant to us. Counterfeit intimacies can come in all kinds of shapes and forms and sizes. I want to show you three and just make a few comments about each one. Fantasy is a form of counterfeit. A lot of sexual fantasies, if I may dare say, almost all sexual fantasies, are counterfeit because they are you not actually loving that person. So you see something, someone who looks physically desirable. You either look at them on a screen, look at them on what paper? Does anybody do that anymore? Right? Or you have them in your mind and you recreate stories, you recreate scenes, you recreate uh, settings and visuals. But actually, you don't love them. You actually don't love them because you will not sit there with them while they are grieving and go through long journeys of that. You will not sit and listen to them be boring because they may very well be very beautiful but also very boring, you know. Um, you will not sit with them um, through, 
through them learning new skills and failing and having to lift them up uh, through that. You will not sit with them uh, through, through, through them as they go through journeys of fighting with their, with their family or fighting with their best friends or something like that and then walking them through. That's love. That's real love. And if all you want is to go in there, strip them and take them and then spit them out, that's a counterfeit. That's not real intimacy. Real intimacy is when you genuinely love that person and they are actual to you. They are not just pixels on the screen to you. They are actual. You love them. You will, you will sit with them. You will go through fire with them. You will drown together with them if you have to. That's love. And if you touch this enough, you can feel when you're indulging in, in, in counterfeit intimacies. Romance. At least romance as the world sells it. I grew up watching a lot of Bollywood. I did. I, I really did. I really did. Um, um, the era of Kuch Kuch Motahe and uh, 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 the era, right? And I learned to sing all the songs. And one thing we got to know, now, y'all got to know this. I, I'm a film student and when, and when I talk about TV and film and pop culture, I'm not a prude. I really am not a prude. I'm really not the kind who's going to come to you and say, you, you need to watch less, you know? Um, that's not me, right? I mean, some of you really do need to watch less of whatever it is, right? But, but that's, not my, that's not my default posture. My default posture is the fact that this speaks to you says something about your life. And it says something about the world you live in. And it says something about us as a community and as a society. So I grew up watching a lot of Bollywood, but I don't watch Bollywood the way the, the people in India watch Bollywood. Bollywood is so extravagant and over the top absurd because the people who watch it, majority, are living in utter poverty and outside their doorstep is just decrepit life with no hope. And so, cinema becomes an outlet for fantasy and romance. It becomes an outlet for escapism because the rest of their life is so bleak. Last week, I made mention of Korean drama. Immediately, half the room took out their took out their guns and were like, "Like I've got the red dot on your forehead. One more word, one more word, Pastor. I'm gonna gun you down, right?" What's all your last all out? <laughs> I'm not gonna wade into this for the sake of saying, "Ah, oh, y'all shouldn't watch so much and all that. Just go here and watch it." But know that it says something about you. It says uh, that we are Malaysians, okay? So, we, so, so we've got different demographics and we've got different statistics. But Athalia, again, always her, she's the best, right? research assistant, triggered me and said, go check out Korea's marriage stats. Go check out Korea's marriage stats because I know Korean drama has evolved and it's not all romance, so I concede that, okay? And, and I don't watch, but it's great, right? That it's, it, it's moving into different forms. But you and I will have to admit that together with Hollywood, and I think less now for Hollywood, okay, Korean drama is probably the top chief exporter of romance in this world. Agree or not? Some of you nodding your heads, right? Korean, Korean dramas is one of the chief exports, or, or rather romance is one of Korea's chief exports. Together with Samsung and Hyundai, you know, <clears throat> and, and, and K-pop, right? And BTS, right? Hyundai, Samsung, BTS, and Romance, right? These are the Korea's chief 
exports. What does romance look like in Korea? Marriage stats in Korea have been in free fall. In free fall since 1995. I know the World Cup was around 2002, and I know that popular Korean culture really started to get into Malaysian shores after that. I know it was already around, but really in between 97 and 2000, and I think around here, it dropped a certain amount. In the last six years, it has dropped that same time it took for the last 18 years. People are not getting married in Korea, or fewer people are getting married in Korea. You might say, Pastor, pandemic, not true. Not really true. Not the, on, not the, on, not the only uh, 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 factor to look at because it's been in decline for many years prior. In fact, it's had sharp decline before pre-pandemic. And actually in a lot of other places, pandemic times saw actually more hasty marriages than drop-in marriages. So, Korea's National Statistic Bureau, by the way. I'm not so sure if romance is the real deal. At least the romance that Hollywood what anyone else is selling to us. The vision for romance is not holding up when you look at reality. Korea is not more romantic. All those beautiful people are not more happy. Or at least, if you, there's another slide on the divorce rates as well. It's been, it's been high since 2002. And one more, digital engagement. I'm going to close soon. I really am going to close soon. One of the ways we find intimacy these days is very conveniently on our phone, we swipe. And guess what? Every time you click like, that little red heart on Instagram, every time you like or you tap on that little, you know, thumbs up on Facebook, if you're still on Facebook, what you're doing is you're sending a pulse. You're sending a pulse from you to the person who posted it. And you're saying in sanitized way, Oh, that you would kiss me with a kiss of your lips. You are saying, oh, that you would notice that I like something that you do. And that's why every time you post something, after five minutes, you will like pick up your phone and check. Oh, did anybody like it? And you put down, you only three likes, and then you have like, <laughs> and you put down. And guess what? In the next half an hour, you will pick up your phone, don't know how many billion times, just to keep looking. And then you click on the who like, and then you scroll, 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 scroll. And maybe you're looking for one or two specific people to see whether they liked it because other people don't matter. Or, or maybe you're looking at sheer numbers, right? You're like, wow, wow, how come so slow? How come normally by now already got like 50, you know? Or maybe by now already got like, maybe you're Insta famous, right? Maybe by now already got like 60,000, you know, still don't have, you know? And, and you are longing. Your longing because every time we we go into this space and we send pulses out when we post we're sending a pulse out and we're asking people don't, don't you all like and when we scroll we are set and engage we are sending pulses to them saying i do like, i do like. and so when we have these longings what we are really looking for is reciprocation we are looking for the other person to make a bit Love. But I want to share this in my closing as, I, as we finish. No amount of reciprocation 
from someone liking you back, from someone really liking you back, no amount of reciprocation can fill that lonely heart. And we'll get into this more next week. But really, the ultimate intimacy can only be found Song of Solomon is a beautiful picture of taking Genesis 2 and almost like making a commentary out of it and turning the Genesis 2 love, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, into a, into almost like a theater, like a play, like a beautiful song. And you see it, you see the, the goal and the idealized version in front of you, Song of Solomon. The love between a man and a woman, the love between one person and another person, never mind marital or non-marital, just seeking someone to notice you and see you as worthy and beautiful. And yet, the best efforts will still disappoint and fall short. God, there is no, no greater love than this. Church, all eyes closed. Today I want us to respond because God sees God sees you He sees that lonely heart and you may be married and still have a lonely heart you may have social events stacked up spilling out of your calendar still have a lonely heart. You may be insta-famous with four-digit, five-digit number of followers and still have a lonely heart. You may have a, a very good, healthy, functional marriage or relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and still have a lonely heart. You may be successful at work you may be self-employed with lots of money, deep pockets underneath you and the freedom to travel, the freedom to, to have nice things, to eat well, to photograph all the nice things you eat well as well and still have a lonely heart. There is no place to find satisfaction for that lonely heart outside of the God who built that heart. Because when He built that heart, he hardwired into that heart an eternal longing that cannot be fulfilled by temporal things. He gave you a love that lasts, a, a longing for a love that lasts forever, and that shape cannot, there is nothing in this world that fits that shape. So there is an eternal love of God shaped whole in all our hearts. And not even the best approximations in the flesh can fill it. I ask you to close your eyes because I want us to all pray. I want to pray. I want to lead us all in prayer. And as I lead you in prayer, I want you to I want to invite you to pray along. If it's meaningful for you, pray along. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. You know my heart. You know my heart. You see how much I long. You see how much I long. 
for love for love to be noticed to be noticed to be beautiful to be beautiful to be wanted to be wanted to be seen to be seen and acknowledged and acknowledged you know how much my thoughts you know how much my thoughts long to be endorsed long to be endorsed you know how much my efforts you know how much my efforts long long to be appreciated to be appreciated Anywhere. And I can't find it anywhere. Church, in your own way, I want you to say this to God. I have gone searching for the one I love. I ran through the cities and the highways and byways through the squares. And in your own words, I want you to say to God, the story it to God. The story your journey to God right now. And as he sees one impression after another, after another, of all your best efforts to say, have you seen the one I love? Have you seen the one I love? And if you think of God coming through your stories and seeing the one after another, after another, he sees the all. Scarcely have you passed by me that you found the one you He is right here. He is available to be in your heart, to be with you, to be your ultimate source of satisfaction. He will say to you, I am with you. I love you. And furious raging waters cannot separate my love from you. Church today, invite him into your heart. You may be older, you may be younger, you may be married or not. Jesus is the ultimate place to find intimacies met and satisfied. Father, we thank you. As we worship right now, Lord God, we pray that we will all come and bow down before you. Church, we're going to close. Just before we close, I want you to put your hand to your heart. I know for some of us, we've been hooked on a counterfeit intimacy I want you to name it before the Lord and that will close name it before the Lord you are safe he is here Father this love I have I give it over to you remove it from me I place a value of this love higher than God to have this will not satisfy I see today this will not satisfy only you shall satisfy so help me to love you help me to hold you help me to not let you now may the Lord bless you and keep you 
May the Lord turn His face to shine upon you, notice you, acknowledge you, see you, and give you grace. May the Lord turn His countenance toward you and grant you peace. And all of God's people say, Amen. 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 Amen.